1: and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological
2: breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired
1: Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The era The mid-70s. The music. And the phone conversation was between Rob Shostak and his brother, Seth, each a few years out of grad school and living far apart. Today, they remember talking about this new gadget they had, something called a personal computer. And back then, you wired it together yourself.
2: So... Rob, I remember that this big box arrived. You had labeled it miscellaneous electronic parts. (laughs) And then I had to spend three weeks soldering things together.
4: Well, that's right. And uh, that was probably the most productive time that you spent with the machine.
2: You know, there was no hard drive. There was no floppy disk. I mean, it it just—you turned off the switch, and it all went away. Of course, those things
4: were in development, and they actually existed by 76, but we couldn't afford them.
2: But we spent some time on the phone trying to figure out, okay, we've got these personal computers. uh, What are we going to use them for other than as a decorative item to impress friends? My recollection is that the one application we could see for these things, these personal computers, was to run the model trains. That's what I recall.
4: Oh, really? I don't even remember our having done that. But we were certainly on the right track, I think you could say that.
2: (laughs) Yes. Well, even so, it was completely unclear what the heck these things were ever going to be able to do.
4: Well, that's true, and that was also true in 1976, I believe it was, when uh, Steve Jobs and his partner Wozniak showed up at the Homebrew Computer Club in uh, Palo Alto demonstrating their hunk of junk, uh, which is what it uh, seemed to be at the time. The Apple I at that time did not seem all that impressive, and Steve Jobs had a tough time getting it to work. Were you there? I was there, yes, Indeed.
2: My goodness. So you saw the unveiling of the, was that the Apple One or was that the Apple Zero? That
4: was the Apple One. Of course, it wasn't complete. You had to buy your own keyboard or make up your own keyboard and buy a little television to
2: hook it up. Exciting times, I I have to say. And yet, personally, I was oblivious to what was going on. (laughs) Well, okay, Rob, then I'll uh, see you for dinner next Saturday night, right? You bet.
3: So, Seth, You and your brother were on the first floor of this development, the personal computer, and you had no idea how big it was going to be.
2: No, not much of one, I got to admit. And it turned out that the personal computers were going to be big. You prepared to say that now? Yeah, I'm thinking of buying one actually. (laughs) And then something else came along that was hard on its heels the internet and then the World Wide Web.
3: Which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Yes, the web is a quarter of a century old or young. And today we regard it, along with the personal computer and the internet, as among the biggest technological inventions ever.
2: And yet, like other big game changers, uh, those inventions that transformed our habits, our economy, even our values, well, we may not have recognized their potential when they first appeared.
3: And while the Internet and computers may be big, you could argue that their effects are dwarfed by even earlier innovations that so restructured modern society, we take them for granted. Is the Internet bigger than the printing press? How about the invention of the plow? And perhaps it's not technology that has the most profound impact on society, but scientific ideas. That the Earth revolves around the sun? That's a pretty big idea. I'm Molly Bentley.
2: And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, where they are, where they were, and where they're headed. And at this moment, we're headed into the past, the recent past. In the place it's now
1: 1989.
2: 1989 a dozen years after my brother and I discovered that the personal computer had no future. And Big Picture Science imagines the scene that played out at that time at CERN, the nuclear research facility near Geneva, Switzerland, where a young British computer scientist, Tim Berners-Lee, is sipping his tea and mulling over a naughty problem for his colleagues. Hmm, there must
1: be a way to connect these computers to talk to each other so that we could share information. This place is a mess. Do the Franco-Swiss ever dust? Just look at that spider web in the corner. Then the aha moment
3: in which he sprang from his chair. I
1: have it! Oh, blast, that was hot. Well,
2: whether it happened that way or not, it was a brilliant insight. Tim Berners-Lee wrote some software, and then he wrote some more, and, well, he kept coding stuff until he had created the World Wide Web.
3: And it's hard to imagine how we'd function today without the web and its linked hypertext documents. I mean, how did anyone share information before the web
1: browser? Hear ye, hear ye. The council meeting of Fourth Night will vote on the curbing of sheep in the public square. Goodwife Brattle is asking for Maypole volunteers, and in weather, our warming trend continues. So, on the
2: 25th anniversary of the web, we asked Wired editor Kevin Kelly to take us back to its beginnings, some time after the days of the town crier, but before broadband, when this was a thrilling sound. Kevin, when you heard that sound of a dial up modem, Describe for me what uh, that uh, conjured up in your
5: mind. That was a very nostalgic emotion of late night dark room and this kind of exhilaration of connecting to this intangible continent, this way off place that virtual minds were meeting. And that sound that, that kind of long involved what they call the handshake of machines talking to other machines. I looked forward to that sound so much, it was all I could do to wait till the hour rolled around when um, you would meet with your virtual friends.
2: You were around for the birth of the web. Did you recognize it at the time as something that was so profoundly important for our technological history?
5: I, I, I didn't sense the the way in which this would transform this sort of hobby, esoteric technology into something that was mainstream. That, that that was not written all over in the very first glimpse. But I think probably within the first year, when we realized that the speed at which this was starting to bloom, that's when I got a sense that, oh my gosh, this this is really going to take over and this is going to move the Internet from being the realm of teenage boys in the basement to the center spotlight in the culture at large.
2: I think a lot of people today, particularly young people, don't recognize that there was a difference between the internet and the World Wide Web, of course. I mean, when you were doing this thing late at night at 11 o'clock or whatever, this was just connecting computers together. But the World Wide Web, I mean, that, that was, you know, allowing you to see pages. I mean, it sort of changed the way you interacted with it, did it not?
5: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The Internet was sort of a bunch of computers connected together, but the Web was more sort of people connected together. Maybe maybe a better way to say it was the Internet was a bunch of computers connected together. The Web was a bunch of documents connected together. And, of course, now we're in a kind of social media, which is people connected together. So that intermediate stage of having all the documents and pictures of the world connected was a big step from just having machines talk to machines.
2: It's kind of an aside. We call it the World Wide Web. We see www
5: in front of the, the addresses very often. Where, where did that term come from? Well, that was Tim Berners-Lee's attempt to, you know, make a language, and it was not, apparently, it was not his first uh, idea. I think he was going to call it, um, I don't know, something else, but it was even more clunky <laughs> than World Wide Web. I'm sure if he had any idea of how common this would become, he would have done something different.
2: I may be wrong, but my understanding is that the internet was originally set up by DARPA and other organizations as a way for essentially academics to communicate with one another for sharing information. It wasn't supposed to be anything commercial, but was it the introduction of the browser making this so easy to do, anybody could do it, that uh, stimulated the development of the, the web into the sort of commercial enterprise that it is today?
5: In fact... You're right that for a while DARPA was the originator of the internet and then the NSF in the US, the National Science Foundation, took it over and ran it for a number of years in the late 80s and commercial activity was prohibited. So it was used primarily by academics, and some corporations had had accounts, but they were prohibited from doing commercial work on it. And this was actually a problem in the beginning when you wanted to have the public come on to it, because the NSF said, well, how can we be sure that there's not going to be commercial activity? By the time the browser came, they already had kind of resigned to the fact that they could not prohibit commercial activity. And I would say within a year or so, HotWired which was owned by Wired, where I worked, invented the click-through ad banner. So within them, within 12 months of the web, it was already being commercialized.
2: That's really very interesting. Well, it sounds like your crystal ball was kind of good, or at least you developed something that <laughs> moved the whole technology forward at an incredible pace. But, I mean, were people very good at predicting how important this development was? I, I believe that at Wired Magazine, even you guys thought it was going to be you know some sort of sophisticated educational platform or or maybe uh, an improvement on television or something like that.
5: Yeah, I think we understood, you know, how powerful this could be, but our uh, imagination of what it was going to be was off, was was not correct. And I think when we did when we looked at surveys about what people said they were going to use this internet for, they always listed very noble things like educational and electronic voting and research and stuff. And at the very bottom was, oh, I might play a game or something on it. And then when the actual web came along, of course, it was completely inverted and turned out to be the great waster of time. And it, you know, and maybe, oh, yeah, maybe you could do some kind of electronic voting or educational stuff on it. So we guessed wrong in that sense. It was a lot more lowbrow. But there was more importantly, we thought that you would have a million different channels of quality content, very, very specific and very, very niche. That seemed to be where it's going. But we wrongly imagined that that all that content would be produced by content makers, by, you know, magazines like Wired or big corporations like Time Warner or AOL. And that was what we got wrong, and not just Wired, but most everybody else who was thinking about what was coming, we missed the fact that most of the content that was really going to be central was going to be generated by the users, the readers, and the audience themselves. That was a big surprise.
2: We speak of the web as if, you know, everybody has access, and probably most of our listeners do, but more than half of the world's population is not connected to the web yet, at least according to uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the web's founder, if you will, I... Take it that it's uh, blatantly obvious that everyone should have open access.
5: I, I, I do believe that the internet and the web has now reached the importance and the the influence of reading and writing and education and clean water. It's it's a it's a common good. It's our common wealth, and in that way, I think there there is an expectation that we should make it available to every person on Earth, just as we would want them to have at least the option of electricity and education and clean water. And I, and I think that the communication is as essential as as those. In fact, curiously, in my travels in the developing world, I have found that people value communication over some of these other basic desires. And so in large parts of the world, Africa and places I've been in Asia, I have lived with people who have cell phones but don't have toilets. So they value this. And I think in that sense, I think the desire and the the benefits from having everybody connected are going to be huge.
2: Well, that obviously begs the question then, Kevin, uh, that the World Wide Web is it's highly valued, even by societies where you would think there there were other things that were more important in their existence. So how would you rank the world wide web, for example, as an influence on our society? I mean you know how big is it? We know it's big, but i mean is it is it the biggest thing since well any other big
0: thing
5: yeah it's a it's a good question i, I think in trying to evaluate the the importance of the Internet and the web we're, we're hampered by the fact that we are still in its infancy. You know, it's a couple decades old, and I think in another, say, 20 years, we'll look back to this time, 2014, and we'll say, oh my gosh, nothing had happened yet. We're just at the beginning of the beginning of what this is going to be about. And all the greatest inventions about the Internet in the next 20 years, have not even been invented yet. And so we're going to be kind of amazed that we even thought that really anything important had happened yet. So so, so that's one of the, the difficulties, is, is that we're kind of trying to evaluate the importance of a, of a newborn. But even given the fact that we're still looking at an infant, I think we can see that it's at least as important as writing has been, the invention of printing. And I think because like writing and printing, these are... Communication technologies and communications is the foundation of culture and society. It's not just one sector of it. It is what culture is. And so we are basically kind of like putting our culture on steroids by moving so much of it to this electronic version. And I think that's going to be played out in the next 20 years where we'll see ever more immense changes in our communication in society because of this invention only a few years ago.
2: Kevin Kelly, thank you so very much for being with us today. It was my pleasure.
5: Thanks for the great questions.
3: Kevin Kelly is senior maverick at Wired and author of What Technology Wants.
2: The personal computer, the web, the internet. Biggest game changers ever. How do you get bigger than that? You invent the infinity machine,
3: next. It's sense sliced bread from Big Picture Science.
6: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay, so the web, the internet, the biggest thing since the personal computer. But the biggest things ever? As Kevin Kelly said, even a techno guy like him didn't immediately grasp the potential of the web.
3: So we don't always know when we've stumbled onto something big, but some innovators set out to build it, and they claim they know when they have it. Let's go back to computers. Here's what one group did to launch computing into an entirely new orbit.
6: We assembled a group of people in a Manhattan-like project, you know, get the best and brightest in all the different disciplines.
3: And then build the next incarnation of computer, a quantum computer.
6: It's harnessing these strange quantum phenomenon. And then completely alter the landscape of computing so that... That in the next few years, we might be able to exceed what's possible with classical computers.
3: Time magazine in their cover story about physicist Eric Ladizinsky's invention dubbed it the infinity machine it's a computer that works in a totally new way it's a quantum computer
2: and it will outreckon anything we have today i reckon and solve some of our toughest problems
3: but, you know, we've heard about how quantum computing is always just around the corner and how it will change everything.
2: Well, in a moment, Eric Ladizinsky will explain just how his invention can do just that.
3: But first, the basics, not the ABCs, but the ones and zeros of classical computing. That is what your laptop uses. When you next turn it on, remember...
6: Information is always physical. And what I mean by that is, you know, on your hard drive, you can think about little magnets on there, up or down, ones and zeros. A transistor switch can be off or on. And what computing really is, is say you have a bunch of switches. They go from one set of up and downs, and then they evolve to another set of ups and downs. And so you can think of a physical system just evolving from one state to another as a computation. In fact, the universe is computing all the time. All physical processes can be thought of as computing. You have some molecules in some arrangement. They move around, and they're in a new arrangement. You could think of that as a computation.
2: So what he's saying there is simply that all computers work on these little bits, but there's a physical incarnation of a bit, like a bead on an abacus. If the bead is there, that's a 1. If the bead isn't there, it's a 0. But there's got to be a bead. You could say that a bead being there means thumbs up, and a bead not being there is thumbs down. It's just that it's either this or it's that. It's binary.
3: So how is it that a bit being up or down translates into anything that I see on the computer screen?
2: Well, the computer has done that for you. For example, every little pixel on a photo you might see on your computer screen, a a graphic, uh, that consists of 24 bits, 24 up and down choices that it translates into red, green, and blue, which provides a pixel that's part of your photograph. Okay, so that's classical computing. It is, but that's the way it's been for more than half a century. One step at a time, computing. But all of that is about to change thanks to being able to exploit the quantum world.
6: What people discovered early on in the uh, 1900s is when they looked at small objects like electrons and things, that they didn't behave anything like we're used to. A single object could be in many places at once.
2: It's a light switch that could be simultaneously on and off, is what you're saying.
6: That's right. There are these strange phenomenon. I can tell you what they are. You can have an object on one side of a wall that you can't pass through. You're a prisoner in a cement cell. Classically, the physics that people knew before 1900, you're stuck. Quantum mechanically, you could disappear and appear on the other side of that wall. So that allows for new possibilities. Another thing that people found is that the same physical object could be in many places at once and live out many possibilities at once. What if you could use that for computing? That means you could do many things at once, explore many possibilities. So there are these phenomena in nature that if we were to harness for computing would allow for possibilities that are unimaginable. You could do maybe in you know one second what would take you billions of years on all the computers on Earth.
3: So it sounds like what he's saying is that in quantum computing, you don't have bits anymore, and they're not either up or down, on or off. It's not a binary system.
2: Yeah, you have quantum bits, qubits, which are not just zeros or ones, not just there or not there. They're sort of there and sort of not there. They're, they're all bits at once. It's very strange, but it allows you to compute things not one at a time, but many, many computations simultaneously.
3: So Eric Ladizinsky and his team at D-Wave Systems say that they are building a computer that exploits this weird behavior of quantum mechanics. Here's another way to think of it.
6: Here's kind of an analogy for quantum computing. So imagine you had a difficult problem. I take you to the Library of Congress. I think it has about 36 million books. And I sneak in the night before, and I take my magic marker, and I put an X on one of the pages, and I put it back into the library. Now, I take you to the front of the library, and I say, I'd like you to go find that X. You have five minutes. You look at me, if you're a reasonable person, and say, "Uh, it would take me many lifetimes to flip through those 36 million books. I'm not even going to bother, unless I got really lucky and was the first one. Now, a quantum physicist comes by and says, I'll take that bet, walks into the library, steps out five seconds later and says, there's the X. Now, we don't do this with people, but now he tells you a really crazy story. You say, how did you do that? He said, well, I put myself in a quantum state. So the same me, not a clone, but the same physical me, went into this ghostly state where I was in 36 million parallel universes. And in each universe, there was a me in the library. And in each universe, that self tried a different book. In most of the universes, I picked the wrong book. But in one of them, I got the one with the X immediately. Now, here's the next trick. One thing that's strange about quantum mechanics is if I were to open the library and try to ask while you were in this weird state of all possibilities at once, only one of those would walk out and you wouldn't get the answer. So there's another trick to quantum computing. I have to get all those parallel selves to talk to each other. So now imagine each one chose a different book. One has the answer. The one with the answer holds up his hand. All the other selves from the other universes can see him. So they all collapse onto him and he walks out with the answer. Now he says this to you and you say, "You know, that's the craziest, most ridiculous story I've ever heard in my life. You're living out all these possibilities and these parallel realities. And then he says, okay, tie me to the chair, blindfold me, pick a different book. And after he had done that 100, 1,000 times in a row and got it every time with no trickery, you start believing in these parallel realities. So quantum computing in a nutshell is there's these strange aspects of nature wherein we could explore a vast number of possibilities simultaneously in what's often referred to as parallel universes, and combine the results from all those different experiences and get an answer. And if you could do that, you'd be able to solve problems that would otherwise remain forever beyond our reach. Okay,
2: so you've built a computer, a D-wave computer. You have several models, I believe. And this thing operates on the basis of quantum mechanics, not classical mechanics, not a bunch of transistor Mm -hmm. switches. It's taking advantage of the fact that, uh, you know, if we look at atoms or whatever, they're in uh, this sort of... uh, parallel universe configuration, if you will. They have several personalities at once. If I opened up the case of one of your computers, what would I see inside?
6: Well, in ours, unlike a lot of quantum computers where people are using microscopic elements, like individual atoms, we actually build like little loops of metal, superconducting metal. And you actually see quantum mechanics at macroscopic scales with objects you can see with the naked eye. And in those loops, you can have a current that goes Clockwise, So imagine a little loop with a current going around clockwise and all the current going counterclockwise at the same time. It's kind of crazy, like being on your bike in the velodrome and you're riding one way and the other way at the same time. But if you actually looked at our chip at room temperature, it would look like uh, an Intel chip to you. You'd see lots of little crazy circuits like a complex city on this little chip, you know, smaller than your thumbnail. But, of course, it's surrounded by a bunch of really complicated things. It's at very low temperature. We have to have it at high vacuum. So your computer requires a really
2: tranquil environment, if you will. Yes. And that usually means cold temperatures.
6: Very cold. You've pumped out all the air, very high vacuum. You shield it from magnetic fields, from light. So it's a very, very cold, very dark place with no air pounding into you or light or magnetic fields. And under those rarefied conditions, these very strange quantum effects, these parallel realities can play out.
2: All right, as a potential customer now, now that I can see this technology, uh, what would I use it for? What are the kinds of problems that would uh, motivate me to buy a quantum computer?
6: Yeah, so I'll give you one, one example. So you're a biologist and you wanna know how molecules behave. So all of biology, and if you want to understand disease and all these detailed biological processes, you have to know how molecules move around, how they connect to other ones. And the interesting thing is, if you were to take giant supercomputers that we have now, you couldn't even model accurately, meaning mimic the behavior of the caffeine in your coffee. It's an amazing revelation. If you want to understand how the molecules of life dance around and interact, you would need something like a quantum computer to do much more powerful computations. And at D-Wave, the thing we're really interested in, we do a class of problems called optimization, meaning imagine you had a huge number of ways you could do something, and one of them's the best. So a mundane example would be FedEx wants to ship all these packages. How do I route all my packages between the various trucks and planes and people? How do I route them to minimize fuel consumption? Nobody can do that efficiently.
2: The problem is simply too complex.
6: It's It's too complex. Scheduling, you know, airplanes efficiently to minimize fuel consumption. Artificial intelligence is another area, which is something we're working on with Google. Underlying intelligence is solving very, very difficult problems, choosing from, say, multitudes of large numbers of possibilities. These are very difficult problems. Let's say facial recognition. I want to build a computer that can recognize all kinds of objects, that can make intelligent decisions based on very large data. I want to cure cancer. I have tons of clinical data. I have tons of genomic data. You know, we're taking people's genes now. And we've got tons and tons of data. We live in this very complex civilization. And what we'd like to do is how can we get meaningful insights about what to do? In those circumstances, something like a quantum computer could be game-changing.
2: So what you're saying is that the the quantum computer may have come along at just the right time to meet big data. I mean, this is a marriage made in heaven or something. we we heard earlier in the show about the birth of the World Wide Web. Uh, it's the 25th anniversary of that, and uh, that the potential of the web, frankly, the Internet really, was not very obvious back then. Uh, it's kind of early days, admittedly, but what do you see as the potential for the quantum computer? Is this going to vanquish uh, all computing?
6: <laughs> Classical computing will probably be around for a long time. I don't see it as replacing so much as supplanting it in those areas where the problems would otherwise be impossible. So
2: is is that going to lead to a sort of bifurcation of computers in the future? I mean, you're going to have, you know, your laptop, your desktop, those are the things you use for word processing, reading your email, maybe streaming a few videos. But for the really big problems like recognizing people entering an airport or or folding proteins or solving the mystery of dark matter, whatever, you're going to have specialized big computers, like, like it was in the old days, where there were only big computers and sort of worthless small ones?
6: Well, I think you know, now with the cloud becoming so ubiquitous, what you probably do is you have your laptop, you can access some computing center that has quantum computers in it, like a quantum computing data center. And when I get to that part of my calculation, I can't do any other way. I send it off to this parallel universe machine that sends back an answer to solve my problem these strange quantum phenomena that underlie our universe, if harnessed in the right way, could be absolutely transformative to our civilization.
2: Eric Ladizinsky, thank you so much for coming in today. Sure. Thanks for having me.
3: Eric Ladizinsky is a physicist, and he is the co-founder and the chief scientist of D-Wave Systems.
2: Okay, quantum computing, it sounds mind-blowing. But a number of innovations have come to define modern life, and some are so woven into our societies we might even forget that there was a time before electricity was just the nearest socket away. George Dyson has a panoptic view of science and technology as an historian of science. Off the top of his head, the top inventions of all time.
7: First, I would say, would be the wheel. The wheel was truly an invention. One day there was no wheel, and then there was a wheel. You sort of don't, you know, half a wheel doesn't do you any good. (laughs) You know, usually on most people's list is fire. Now you can argue, was fire an invention or was it a discovery or was it the, the other category of things, which is an implementation, that sort of fire was there and then somebody had to implement it as a technology? And on my own list would be things like uh, knots, which I think are hugely important in human history, was the invention of tying knots, the invention of sewing, things like that, that normally aren't on the lists, or I think are sort of at the foundation of everything.
3: You're really broadening out this list because some of our top inventions, we think, okay, the wheel, but then the printing press, you know, the plow, but just with everything that you've said, it sounds like the list is a long one.
7: Yes, and of course, most people start the list later with things like the printing press, the telegraph, and so on. But if you want to go back to the beginnings of technology, simply breaking stones into edge tools was another supremely important invention. On my list of things after the wheel, the, the top of my list was cement, which is, I was also ignored. But but that really was an invention.
3: Why why cement and this gets at the question of the metric that one applies to an invention to determine whether or not it was really transformative. Why why cement?
7: It's literally at the foundations of enduring civilization as we know it. I mean if you take away the cement, you know everything else collapses. So on my list it's an important invention and in other people's it would say well cement it's just one step above mud but it's a, it's a big big step.
3: Well, George, so cement is one that you put as one of the greatest inventions since the wheel, but you also think that before the wheel, it might have been the knot. Is the knot actually an invention?
7: Yes, I would classify the knot as an invention. And, of course, making rope and string and lashings is, is also an invention, but the techniques of how you tie, you know, because in the early world, you didn't have long pieces of rope or string, and how how you knot them together. The knot really is at the basis of a whole lot of other things we take for granted.
3: And that would have come before the wheel?
7: Yes, yes, clearly long before the wheel.
3: Do we have any idea who invented the knot or what happened, what the conditions were to create that first knot?
7: No, because it's an entirely biodegradable technology, so no direct evidence, early evidence of knots exist. But we have circumstantial evidence. We see stone tools that, that there must have been knots in order to tie them to the handles and this this sort of thing.
3: Well, often making the top of the list um, when these lists are compiled is the printing press invented about 1430 or so. And I, and I believe that you agree that that is one of the winners.
7: Yes. It's certainly on the short, short list. If you had to pick a dozen inventions of all time, the printing press would be right there. And effectively, the printing press was the first truly mass replication of information. It's the first time that information as an abstraction could be replicated in large numbers. Before that, you could replicate information one clay tablet at a time or telling stories, recording manuscripts, but nothing was ever the same after we started printing books.
3: When we talk about inventions, the greatest inventions as being transformative, It's not just that they've allowed us to do one thing, but they end up changing our idea of modern life, our values, often our economy, the way we think about things. I mean, that would certainly be the case of the the printing press, if you could have an idea and disseminate it. Can you say more about sort of the ways in which great inventions can have far-reaching implications?
7: Yes. The really, truly great inventions become essential for everything, the way... Every subject was changed you know, by the invention, not just of printing, but of books. And of course, the other things that could be printed, for instance, printing money, which changed the world again profoundly. In a way, if you have to rank the inventions, I think that's a good way to do it, is to you make a massive chart in which you illustrate the relationships between inventions, and then you find that there's, there's certain inventions that influence great numbers of other influential inventions.
3: Well, earlier in the show, we were hearing about the Internet and the web browser as among the 1st rung inventions of all time, and Kevin Kelly makes the case that, that they're as big as writing and the invention of printing because of their reach. W- would you agree?
7: Uh, yes and no. I mean, again, I would go back and question, in a way, the definition, that it's, it's hard for me to see the Internet actually as an invention, because there was no point at which somebody invented the internet. In fact, the internet, in a way, is sort of misrepresented. We don't really know what it is. I mean, the the internet is is simply, technically, it's a series of protocols that allow networks to speak to each other. And that, in itself, is not so clearly an an invention.
3: Well, on this idea of the um, definition of invention as opposed to discovery, so is something like Penicillin, which often makes these lists of great inventions, electricity, are those cases of discovery of something profound, but it's not really an invention in itself.
7: It's the choice of words that, that Fleming, you know, he discovered penicillin, but he invented antibiotics. I would not question at all that penicillin was an invention but it's not the invention of penicillin it's the invention of of this sort of idea of an antibiotic
3: you know in these lists that go around the plough makes the short list often as an invention that not only made agriculture possible but that in some ways made everything else possible that seems like quite a claim uh, where does the plough rank as one of the great inventions
7: that sort of brings up how much of this really is personal taste because i think if in in my top 10 or 12 I probably wouldn't put the plow, but I understand why people do. And as you hint at it, you know, it was important because it not only led to agriculture, but it it sort of led to the whole idea of harnessing the energy of animals, which led to harnessing horses. And, you know, we wouldn't have had automobiles if we hadn't been riding around horses first. So the plow certainly led to a lot of things and opened agriculture in a way that wouldn't have happened without it.
3: George Dyson, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: Thank you.
2: George Dyson is an historian of technology and author of Turing's Cathedral and Darwin Among the Machines. Up next, what if the greatest
3: breakthrough of all time is not a thing but an idea?
2: It's since sliced bread from Big Picture Science. We've been talking about the technological inventions that changed everything and recognizing that when many of these came along, we didn't see their potential.
1: What are you doing, Frog? I put finishing touch on my new invention. Let me see. It's very flat, smooth, and round like moon. Yes, I call it table. Ooh, table. What it good for? I can set object on it, like rock or favorite twig. Oh, can I try? No more crouching down or painful arthritis flare up. Help me move table into cave. Okay, careful. Okay, watch out for toe. Sorry, no, no, losing grip. Whoa, oh, no! Oh, table roll downhill. I think round shape is problem. Yeah, you right. Rolling object not get us anywhere frog make failed invention of no importance. Sorry, frog. <clears throat> you know, I have invention too. Oh, really? Let me see. I rub two sticks together like this until sticks very warm. See? Mm-hmm. I touch them. Ouch. Hot. They get very hot. <laughs> A nice try, Gurk, but no one have use for hot sticks. Don't give up day job. What day job?
2: Well, however they eventually came about, there's just no arguing that some innovations not only made life easier, they transformed our society, reshaped how we communicate, what we create, how we live, even changed our worldview.
3: But perhaps the most transformative achievements of humankind are not the advances in technology, but in knowledge, the result of scientists who are relentlessly curious about how nature works.
8: I'm Jamie Bach, professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology and a
2: senior research scientist at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Dr. Bach and others have found evidence that indicates that very, very shortly after the Big Bang's first moments, the universe underwent a rapid expansion called Inflation. The team's data show
3: evidence of gravitational waves, ripples in space time, that have been called the earliest tremors
2: of the Big Bang. Now, we all know about the Big Bang, but this is the first proof of inflation theory. It's a big discovery, and it joins other biggies brought about not because someone was trying to build a better mousetrap, but simply because they hope to answer fundamental questions about how the universe works. Ditto the theory of evolution, the discovery of DNA, and germ theory.
3: And inflation was once just a bizarre premise.
8: Inflation was a theory that was uh, invented in the early 80s. And it's basically an expansion of space uh, in the first moments after the Big Bang. And when I say the first moments, we're talking a billionth of a billionth of a billionth a fraction of that after the Big Bang. And inflation means that the universe expanded so rapidly that you can think of it as space expanding faster than the speed of light, but it's all consistent with uh, Einstein's equations. What it really means is if, for example, if we had two observers before inflation that were communicating with each other, the expansion would move them apart so rapidly that they would lose contact with with one another. And it's consistent with Einstein's equations, but you need to have some weird form of uh, energy to cause this kind of expansion.
2: So, this idea of an inflation following the Big Bang, and, and, and as you point out, I think it was a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang went off. I mean, th- this idea was cooked up by some physicist named Alan Guth, as I understand it, sitting in his car roughly three decades ago, as you note. Uh, this new experiment is the best evidence yet for the fact that this actually happened. What have you shown with your experiment that uh, nobody else had been able to do before? Well, inflation is really a phenomena. So mm. people like Alan
8: Guth were worried about problems in, in cosmology at that time, in the early 80s. Uh, one problem that uh, drove this idea was that when we look at the microwave background, this afterglow from the Big Bang, uh, each piece of the sky has a characteristic temperature. And... The temperature everywhere on the sky is almost exactly the same. It's the same to about 10 parts per million. And according to cosmology theory at the time, those individual regions have never been in contact with each other. So it seemed very strange to Alan Guth why the temperatures could be exactly the same if they had never communicated with each other. Uh, AND SO INFLATION WAS A PHENOMENA THAT SOLVED THAT PROBLEM. AND THE WAY IT SOLVED THAT PROBLEM IS THOSE PIECES OF THE SKY WERE IN CAUSAL CONTACT BEFORE INFLATION. AND WHEN INFLATION HAPPENED, THIS SUPERLUMINAL EXPANSION, IT FLUNG THOSE REGIONS OUT outside of causal contact, but uh,
2: they had all been connected at this earlier time. So they were all in the same club, if you will, so they all learned to dress alike or whatever. I mean, the fact that the universe looks the same, more or less, no matter which direction you look, means that they all had to be together, all parts of the universe had to be together at least sometime in the past, and you're saying that was the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second.
8: Right. So inflation explains that phenomena, but the physical process, this energy that I mentioned that drove inflation, the physics of that process, uh, Alan Guth didn't know what that was at the time that he came up with this theory. And then there have been many, many cosmologists who have tried to figure out what the mechanism behind inflation is. And so the signal we're seeing, this background of gravitational waves is only predicted by some theories of inflation, and there are many others that would predict a much lower amplitude of gravitational waves. So the, one of the exciting things about this measurement is that it's allowing us
2: now to understand a bit more about what, what's behind inflation itself. Does this inflation happen only once, or could there be some sort of random sporadic inflation going off all the time, Jamie, making new universes?
8: Well, the purveyors of inflation, and I'm an experimentalist, but the purveyors of inflation have uh, strong opinions about uh, that possibility. And, and and some of them would say that um, inflation's an unstable process, and so multiple universes could be created a, as a result of it. I'm not aware of any testable predictions from that yet, but if there were some, I'd be eager to go out and
2: make some measurements. So so we could live in what's no more than just one bubble. In a bathtub full of foam,, uh, but there's no way to prove that yet that anyone's thought of.
8: Well, not yet, not that anyone's thought of. But uh, remember, when inflation was first developed, it seemed completely untestable also. and uh, And here we are uh, making all these measurements now.
2: Jamie, how do you rate the significance of this discovery? I mean, it's early days, of course. But some have already said that the evidence for inflation, I mean, you know, you're in line for a Nobel Prize yet in the big picture look at scientific discoveries? I mean, how how big is this, or, or do we even know?
8: Well, part of the fun part of this is I don't think we fully know all the implications. Um, I, I've known that we've been detecting a signal for the better part of a year, and I've enjoyed going about my daily life kind of thinking in the back of my mind, boy, what does this mean? But it does seem just completely fantastic. We're saying something about the universe just trillions of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, we're looking back 14 billion years and and learning something about the universe then. Uh, Also, the process of inflation is really beyond our current understanding, and that's why there's so many theoretical speculations about it. And also, there's a deep connection here that the gravitational waves that uh, are produced by inflation are blown up from tiny quantum mechanical fluctuations, and Physicists have long long speculated that there's a connection between gravitation and quantum mechanics,
2: and this is uh, evidence for that. So, I mean, I'll ask you straight out. Do you think that this result is likely to change the agendas of uh, grad students and professors of physics throughout the world? I mean, are are they going to shift gears now?
8: Well, there's so many exciting implications from this measurement that I I think we're going to be working out the implications for, for some time now.
2: Well... How do you think this discovery will stack up, say, a thousand years from now? I mean, to other scientific discoveries, such as that of the atom or the structure of DNA or Darwin's theory of evolution or Einstein's theory of relativity. I mean, how's this going to fit in the pantheon of major scientific discovery?
8: Well, of course, it's difficult to say. However... I'm hopeful that what we're doing here is we're actually opening up a window on inflation and, and learning about new physics. And if if that's the case, it's uh, it will indeed be a
2: watershed measurement. Jamie Bach, thank you so very much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Jamie Bach is a physicist
3: at the California Institute of Technology.
2: Well, we've been talking a lot about mind-boggling tech inventions, but also about, you know, a very mind-boggling scientific advance. I mean, it's hard to tell which is going to be the more important down the road. That's a lot of mind-boggling in one show. (laughs) My mind has certainly been boggled. I mean, everybody can appreciate the inventions because they affect your life directly. But the other things, they affect you in a a different sort of way. I mean, they're just sort of gratifying. It's psychic income to know how the Big Bang went off.
3: I mean, it really gets at the question of how we measure the value of an invention or a discovery. I mean, perhaps with an invention, it's how many people use it, how does it change our economy, and so forth. But with a discovery, a scientific discovery, doesn't it also change how we see the world? Really, our understanding of reality. That's pretty big.
2: I agree. I mean, it's not about comfort. It's about some sort of satisfaction that you get when you just understand something.
3: If there's one theme that seems to run through all of these discoveries and inventions, is that they weren't recognized at the onset as being as big as they came to
2: be. We're not always prescient about what is truly important. And before we try and decide which scientific discoveries or technological inventions were the biggest, let's remember what we're measuring them all against. And that occurred in the year 1928.
3: Oh, well, hello! Is this the High V Bakery in Chillicothe, Missouri? Yes. And who am I speaking with?
0: Uh, Aaron Gardner, and I am the bakery manager here.
3: You're the manager. Well, Aaron, I understand that your town is the birthplace of one of the greatest inventions of all time. What is that invention?
0: We are actually the hometown of sliced bread, so it's actually the first place where uh, we commercially sliced bread.
3: Okay. And would you consider it one of the greatest inventions of all time? Absolutely. Why is it? Why is it so great?
0: Sliced bread. I mean, everybody needs it, you know, and less the hassle for people to have to slice their own.
3: Do you have a sense of how much people prefer sliced bread over whole loaf?
0: We don't even sell it. Loaves that we do sell, most of the time, the customers bring it up to us for us to slice it, anyways. I mean, I we, it's not a big item.
3: Okay, so whole loaf is not a big item. People want sliced bread. Aaron, how long does it take to slice bread with your machine?
0: With our machine, I mean, really, it's less than half a minute.
3: If you had to do that with a, a bread knife, how long do you think it would take you to slice bread?
0: Oh, I would probably say a good five minutes. I mean, at least. Okay, so maybe
3: we're saving four and a half minutes. What are we going to do with that extra time? What, what do you do with that extra time?
0: Oh, well, anything I can in the bakery. It's pretty busy <laughs> back here, so. <laughs>
3: okay, and Aaron Gardner is the manager of the High V Bakery in Chillicothe, Missouri. Thank you so much for speaking with us. All right. Our production team is the greatest thing ever, thanks to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Molly Sharlack.
2: Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
3: ears have been attuned to Sense Slice Bread. There's more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on
2: iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because radio was the biggest invention since the previous big invention, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show.
3: We were around for the invention of the podcast, but not for the invention of radio.
2: I was.